Execute order sixty six. Welcome back, Gamer Nation, to episode number 37 of the Order 66 podcast. My name would be GM Dave, and yes, I'm still just a little bit sick. Can you believe it? But my Longhorns won, and I can't get much happier than that. With me, as always, Mr. GM Chris. Stepping That's on me. me. Yeah. That's me. Yeah, but uh, you can't seem to kick this, uh, this uh, sickness you got, man bronchitis my man and now it's the, the, the bronchitis the bronchitis i know dude and now it's even worse it's it's like uh giving me a, a sore throat and all that other garbage to go with it secondary infection it's just it's been three and a half weeks and i just can't ah. get over it i'm sorry man i'm sorry well what is up gamer nation i am gm chris as gm dave said and uh, we are finally back with you after uh gosh i guess week it's been about a, a week and a half yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we were planning on getting this cast up earlier in the week, but um, Dave has just really been out of it. So I'm glad you're finally up and you know able to, to do this, and that we have the time to do it is is, is another important thing. That so is, this is a, a wonderful thing. So I'm glad you all are with us. And uh, for those of you who may just be walking into the room for the first time, this is the Order 66 podcast, and is dedicated to nothing but. Uh, talk and conjecture and lots of uh, answering questions uh, regarding uh, the Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing game. General banter and repartee. And, and repartee. And um, we're glad you guys are along for the ride. And yep. this is going to be a good episode this week, a fairly long episode. We're going to be talking about something that people have asked us to talk about for some time, or at least dip into, and we're going to be, um, as well as a, a few other choice uh, questions to be answered and announcements to be had and things of much goodness so it's so good it's all good well okay so for those of you who have not yet experienced the power the passion and the glory that is fourth edition dungeons and dragons and you're a little scared maybe you're skeptical maybe you know you're a huge fan of third edition you don't want to try the new one you think it's gonna suck or or you've never played any D before in your life and you're just kind of interested to know what it's about what can you do to find out information about this amazing game? Well, you could go to d20radio.com and choose the or the uh, oh, I almost said order sixty six <laughs> the radio free Hamlet link, which will take you over to the fine folks of RFH, led by DM Tim, yeah, putting up really, all really the juicy goodness of Fourth Edition. I know, really, really good podcast, and it is um, it is entirely devoted to fourth, fourth edition. They have their ninth episode or their ninth adventure up, uh, which is entirely devoted to the Paladin, and um, it is it is long and wonderful and full of juicy goodness. But yeah, if you guys, you guys seriously want to want to take a look at 4E, see what it's about, give the cast a listen. Our, the RFH crew is wonderful, and um, they do an excellent job and really give you a sense of what the game is like. You can get a lot from it. Yeah. So. Give it a whirl. And while you're over at the d20radio.com website, where, you, where it should be bookmarked, you should all be bookmarking it right now when I'm talking. Just go and just bookmark d20radio.com. 
uh, go ahead and click on the swag link and grab yourself a spiffy diffy d20 radio t-shirt you can uh, be large and in charge with either an Order 66 or Radio Free Hamlet t-shirt, and you can proclaim your membership in the Gamer Nation. Yep. And, uh, it, it, you know, you can be the talk of the town at the uh, FLGS, friendly local gaming store. Do it. You know, you can sport your geek cred something fierce. That's right. It does It Just, does, uh, It does. does increase geek cred by having one of those t-shirts on, by the way. It does. Yes. Whatever. You, you, you get a massive circumstance bonus. Yep. And uh, lastly, on the announcements front, we have a few juicy bits of web goodness. Uh, the Knights of the Old Republic campaign guide web enhancement number five is up at the official Wizards of the Coast Star Wars uh, role-playing website, uh, where you can find the background and stat block for the vile Sith sorcerer Karnak Tetsu. Uh, a villain from the Dark Wars, uh, this CL-15 baddie can be easily inserted into most any game, and uh, pretty pretty handy to have. CL-15. Yeah, yeah, he's a tough sung gun. I'll uh, say so. And very, very cool. And no lightsaber or anything like that, because it's Dark Wars, so this is like really old, like a long time ago. Uh, but, you know, you know, just from the Force Adept angle, you know, he can be inserted into any campaign very easily. Right. Very, very useful. And Dave and and Jedi Master Sterling Hershey has done what some said could not be done. D twenty radio zone, Sterling Hershey. <laughs> yes, yes, he's, he's ours apparently. Yes. Um, but you know, release... you know what I mean by that, right? Well, no. What do you mean? By there's that? a there's a sports talk show uh, station here in Dallas, and anytime they have somebody on their air on their show. Oh, you're talking about the ticket. They do that on the ticket, don't Yeah, they? the ticket's own, whatever. So oh, Sterling has right. been on the show. So he is D20 Radio's own Sterling, Sterling. Oh, I'm cool with that. I like that. I like That's that. Right. So it's also D20 Radio's own, own uh, Rodney Thompson. Right. Yeah, Rodney Thompson. Very, now, you, very nice. You okay, just, well, then, then let, me, let, me, let, me, let me start over. We unveiled our next big guest, but that's all right. Yeah, well, that's okay. So, so D20 Radio's own Sterling Hershey has done what some said couldn't be done, the release of another official module for Saga. And yes, it is completely <laughs> free. Yep. Nice. You gonna cough into the mic some more? I'm sorry, I couldn't hit the kill switch. Bah. My bad. It's okay. Anyway, this new module is for download on the Watsi site. It is completely free. Iridonian Darkness is available for download right now, and it's a quick and, well, frankly, rather well done uh, level five adventure set in the Kotor era. And this is this is Dave. This is like w- w- the one that was rumored to be the, um, the the lost adventure that that wasn't published in the Kotor campaign guide, but they wanted to. Um, and fans have been kind of slavering to get their hands on this for some yep. time. Um, at the very least, the folks over at the Gleemax forums will have one less thing to bitch about. That's right. For for a, for a little while, at least. One less thing, even though they still have about a hundred things to, to. Well, yeah, they, they yeah, that's kind of what they do there. So that's cool. But both the web enhancement and the new adventure can be downloaded at www.wizards.com/starwars, which is Watsi's official site. Go there, check out the goodness and the greatness. You will be thankful. That's right. Um, wow. One one more shout out I want to send is hmm. to. And I, I've got my I've got all my notes down, Chris. So you'll have to tell me who it was that sent us the index cards. Oh, oh, uh, Berman. I have they, these are really well done. They're stat blocks, basically that'll fit on an index card. So I'm gonna run them through our Adobe Illustrator to put the template for D20 Radio on there, mm-hmm. and they will be available for anyone anywhere to download. 
Yeah, this is so cool. And basically, Berman is one of our listeners, and, and he went through every book, like all of Threats, all of the core rule book, and he took every stat block for every threat, and he put it into this 4x6 index card format. And uh, it was just a heck of a lot of work. And, I mean, this is going to be like, our, our, I guess, our first uh, GM supplement uh, download from Berman uh, through the d20radio.com website. And, uh, well, I mean, gosh, Dave, I mean, how soon do you think we'll have that up? Uh, I've got to reformat them so that I could put them four up on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper and something, you know, so oh. they can cut them. But uh, hopefully I'll have them up in a week. Awesome. Awesome. So keep your eyes on the site, guys. Keep your eyes on the prize. That's and speaking right. of keeping my eyes on things, I, I've been keeping my eyes on my mailbox recently, Dave. Oh, have you now? I have. I have. And I happened to walk down there uh, Friday afternoon, actually, and um, there was a postcard waiting for me from our good friend, Commander Cody. Oh, Here, check, check this out. Well, hell sweet. Uh, this this postcard gamer nation has kind of a silky sheen to it, and uh, a picture of an advanced dome city surrounded by what seems to be a, a wild and toxic landscape. And the writing on the postcard reads, "Welcome to Clackdoor Seven, visitor. Please stay inside the cities. We wouldn't want you suffocating. And please mind the Ebith." <laughs> from across the galaxy, it's time for postcards from Commander Cody. GM Dave and GM Chris. This week, my unit was headed back to the Outer Rim Territories along the Rimmer Trade Route. Our destination, the Kolu system and the planet Clackdoor 7. The almighty Emperor Palpatine's recovery, I mean, uh, leisure, is of the utmost importance to us, and to speed that along, our unit has decided to surprise his eminence with a very special treat. A musical extravaganza! <laughs> uh, to that end, we're headed to the homeworld of the Bith. Despite the support they gave the foolish Separatists during the war, the Bith are a generally pacifistic people, renowned for their artistic and musical abilities. The planet of Clactor 7 is a sad world that proves the worth of the Empire and that these aliens simply can't be trusted to manage their own affairs. I understand that over a century ago, a trivial dispute between two of the city-states on Clactor 7 led to a vicious chemical war that scoured the face of their world, mutating the atmosphere and wildlife into an ecology unable to support life. The Bith walled themselves into sustained dome cities and claimed to have learned from their mistake following the misguided views of pacifism. Devoting themselves to peaceful pursuits such, in, such as music and sculpture, they've grown physically weak. There's also rumors of a mutated offshoot of the Bith, the Yibith, that are able to survive on the outer surface of the world, and even the Bith seem reluctantly to admit the existence of this group, though they clearly shun them. But the Bith have much to offer us in the way of our Imperial entertainment needs, and our squad is bound and determined to obtain their services. One way or another. Well, we're coming into orbit now, chaps. I can't wait to audition the best they have to offer. <laughs> Old Palpatine will be so surprised it'll knock his hood off. <laughs> well, I'll best be off. Remember, guys, if you're anxious to find a good chicken Gakalu player or choke on some toxic atmosphere, head over to Clackdoor 7. Long live the Empire! Your friend, Commander Cody. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, I um I took some Chid and Kalu courses um in college, uh, just some remedial stuff. You know, did, did you know? Well, I thought I was signing up for the bassoon, but uh, then I really, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah. I wish I had Not that. Really. Bum bum bum. 
Yeah, no, not really. You know. You know, that's that's a very uh, simple song. You know that you you learn first year in your Chittenkalu courses. Yeah. All right, scumbag, pay attention. It's time for mail call. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to some real mail. We got a lot of it this week, guys. Um, So let's get to it. Sebastian, uh, our good friend Sebastian, emailed me again this week, and he said, I have a quick question. I wonder if he'll do a mashup for us. Uh, Maybe. That'd be nice. Okay. Well, Sebastian says, I have a quick question. Uh, A droid PC in my game has a DC-5 translator unit and an 18 intelligence, so a plus 4 modifier. Does this mean he can at least understand every language in the galaxy because he can't fail the check? Well, Sebastian, you are correct, sir. Um, Basically, a DC-5 unit, which is the best available and hella expensive, by the way, has a database with virtually every language encountered at any point in time in the galaxy programmed into it. Uh, The intelligence check is basically a droid searching the database for the appropriate knowledge um, to find the language within the database. Your particular droid is so darn smart that he can never fail that check because the database is that comprehensive and he's that smart. Okay. Now, while this may not sound too terribly realistic, it's actually quite sensible in Star Wars. I mean, honestly, Dave... How often in the films or, like, in canon EU are the heroes ever hampered by their inability to speak a language? Ever? Never. Yeah, I mean, I can think of some random times in, like, some books, but that's about it. I mean, 3PO is always there with over 6 million forms of communication. I mean, that's kind of part of, you know, what his thing is. It just never seems to be a problem. I mean, you know, okay, wow, we're on Endor. There's this strange little race that's never really ever encountered civilization before, ever. And yet 3PO speaks their language. Right. Um, that when that was the only one that came to mind is because they didn't understand it at first. Right. But then you know, and, but, but, you know, it's like, had you know, a dialect of it. Yeah. He just he had the dialect. You know. Well, good. I mean, that that's insane. But he had the dialect because he had a DC five translator unit, and at some point in time, somehow somebody encountered the Ewok language, and that database happens to have it. So there it is. Wonderful. Hope that answers your question. Beautiful. Okay. Another email <laughs> came to us uh, from Messiah. Um, uh, with two questions he had. He says, Hello, my name is Messiah, and I have two questions. Uh, first is about move object. One of my players have asked me if he can use move object on himself to lift himself up and fly. At first, it didn't seem balanced to me, but since I'm such a good GM, I allowed him to use the power on himself as if it was the flight talent from the Witches of Dathomir talent tree. Uh, mostly the part about having to end the flight on a solid surface. I hope to use this solution only temporarily till I'd find the official version, but I haven't found it yet. Really appreciate it if you could enlighten me in the matter. Okay. Get the horns ready. Oh, well. Messiah, a Jedi cannot use move object on himself. Yeah, yeah. This was clarified by the developers very early on, and it is chronicled multiple, pl- multiple times in Raving Dorks Frequently Asked Questions on Wizards of the Coast official Star Wars Saga Edition forums. Okay. Dude, a good rule of thumb is this. If there's a question as to whether an ability can do something, and you can point to a concrete, clear-cut rule that allows you to do it outright, um, in this case, the, the, as you mentioned, the flight talent, then you shouldn't be able to do it. Okay? If there's a question as to whether something does something or not, and you can point to something else that does the exact same thing, clear-cut, there is no question. There's no question at all. If you could use move object this way, why would the flight talent even be there? All right? Well... Messiah had another question. He says, the other question I have is about Mira Lucas. 
I have one in my party, and he tells me that since Miralukas can see through the Force, they don't need to move their heads to look behind them. Now, that sounds reasonable to me, but I also wanted to have some confirmation from an outside source. Thanks for the help, and keep up the good work. Yay. Um, okay, so, yeah, your player is correct. Technically, Force Sight, which is the racial ability Miraluka has, lets them ignore all penalties to perception from cover. Okay, but note, cover is not total cover. They are two different mechanical things. All right, um, they can also ignore penalties to perception from concealment. Okay, so not seeing something because you're blind, or because that something is in total darkness, or inside of a cloud of smoke, or is behind you, uh, that is by definition concealment, and Amira Luca ignores that. Um, something behind a wall, however, has total cover, yep. so Amira Luca couldn't see that with foresight. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay, very good. Okay, continuing on. Dr. Scraps um, on the forums had this question to ask. Uh, this came up last night during our KOTOR game. The GM put us in the middle of a pretty heavy starship battle, and our freighter was getting the crap blasted out of it. So while the GM took a pause to look up something in the book, the player next to me, who was in the smaller craft along with us, asked if he could use his harm's way talent to intercept the next incoming attack, even if he was in a ship. Since the GM was occupied, I ruled that in where ship combat is concerned, a pilot of a ship could use his harm's way to protect another pilot's ship in combat. The situation wasn't played out, but he wanted to ask me to ask the community. Uh, okay, Doc, um, our forum community did indeed hop on this one pretty quick, and I will echo their sentiment. Uh, page 16 of the Starships of the Galaxy book clarifies this by stating in bold black and white that you can indeed use harm's way in a starship. Um, I... I highly recommend Starships of the Galaxy. I mean, if you're going to be doing any starship combat, it's almost indispensable. Not just for the plethora of ships available, but for the time it takes to really go in through a whole chapter and, and clarify dozens of existing talents and feats from the core rulebook and how they apply to starship combat. Um, and Harm's Way is just one of those, and yep. there's a lot. Yep. So, yep. definitely worthwhile. And lastly, Dave, I get a PM this past week uh, from uh, Avendisora with a question, um, well, a different question, about starship combat. Um, he writes, I have a question about attacking in a dogfight. Now, I posted a question on the forum, but I'm still unclear. According to the book, when you're engaged in a dogfight, on your turn, if you, you make an opposed pilot roll to attack, if successful, you make an attack as a swift action. Does this necessitate an attack roll, or do you simply deal damage? I listened to episode 14, and about 43 minutes in, you say, you don't, ma you don't make an attack roll to attack your enemy, you make a pilot check. That led me to believe that you forego the normal attack roll in a dogfight. Am I correct? Did I misunderstand, or did you misspeak? If I understand correctly, this brings up an issue with crits. By that reasoning, you can't crit in a dogfight. A natural 20 on an opposed pilot roll is a skill check, not an attack roll. Some clarification will be most helpful. Thanks. Okay, well, get the horn ready, Dave. Um, <laughs> upon re-listening to episode 14, you, sir, are correct, and I got it wrong. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, at least it sounds that way back in episode 14. Well, um, you know, I clearly misspoke. You know, it's, it's terrible when we're <laughs> all of a sudden... We're shown to be mere mortals in the Star Wars world. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, it's a terrible day in oh, Order sixty six land. I'll tell you, Avendasora. You know, you're absolutely right. And um, uh, 
page page 171 of the core rulebook clearly states uh, when you're in a dogfight, if you're the pilot, you must spend a standard action to beat the opposed pilot check of your foe. Then you may spend a swift action to attack him. So, the only benefit of being in a dogfight, um, as opposed to just being adjacent to your foe and attacking them normally, is that your foe also has to beat your opposed pilot checks to attack you, which really does make sense when you think about what a dogfight is. So, if you're an amazing pilot, it's usually advantageous to get into a dogfight because your foe will have to struggle to hit you because not only are they going to be burdened with hitting your reflex defense, they're going to have to beat your pilot check first, which could be very, very hard to do um, since they're unable to cope with your mad pilot skills. From a fluffy perspective, it's the mechanic that allows your pilot prowess to play a role in ship-to-ship combat, which it should, okay? Ship-to-ship um, Ship to ship. Uh, but to uh, to answer the rest of your question, you're still attacking. It may be a swift action, but it's still an attack. Okay, uh, That means that a nat 20 is a crit, and you can spend destiny points on that attack. Uh, just not, of course, on the pilot check you make beforehand. Um, now, I have seen house rules where GMs simplify this by having opposed pilot checks to hit straight out. Okay. My problem with that is that a first-level fighter pilot with a good dex and skill-focused pilot could easily have a plus 13 or plus 14 to his pilot check, and that is insane if you're making a pilot check to attack, considering that an attack roll from the same character might get a plus 3 or plus 4 under really circumstances, really good circumstances. Yeah. So uh, that's how it's played out, and I hope that answers your question. And if you guys have any questions you want to pose uh, the Gamer Nation, you can, of course, uh, go to the forums at d20radio.com slash forums. You can email us directly if we we're going to address them on the show, uh, gmchris at d20radio.com or gmdave at d20radio.com. And if you have any bumpers, uh, which... Um, we didn't we, get any again. didn't get any again this past week and a half. And yes, if you guys, by the uh, way, as hard as it is to believe the number that full-on sent us, We've used them all. Yeah, I think I think we have. Yeah. Um, now I've had two people t- uh, tr- email me saying, you know, hey, um, I'm trying to Skype you and I can't seem to do it. Are you sure you have email set up on uh, a voicemail set up on your Skype? Yeah, I got uh, I got an email message a couple of weeks ago. That was that uh, that was that uh, one that I sent in that was in French or something like that. Oh, yeah. Skype message. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I mean, well, D20 yeah. Radio will work. D20 R A D I O. Or GM Dave, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, well, you guys can also, uh, of course, send us any questions you have uh, via Skype. Lose a uh, line. Leave it, leave it on voicemail. Or, of course, the Lusa line, um, 206-600-5872. And L-U-S-A, Lusa. You know what? I need to clarify. There was one guy that did try to leave a bumper, and I could barely hear it. I, all I heard was something about Darth Revan, but the the connection was really bad. And I just I, I ran it through my sound filtering stuff, and I just couldn't get it to sound decent without Aww. just a whole lot of hum and background noise. So whoever that was, it, all I heard was Darth Revan in the middle of it. That's all I heard. So whoever that was, try and resend it again to the loser line. Cool means. Cool. Thank yep. you very much. Well, oh. If you guys have questions, let us know. Okay, we, we, we've already done this. Why are we going back to it? Because I forgot to mention something very important. Okay. And this is in regards to Knights of the Old Republic or um, the Star, Star Wars The Old Republic or Star Wars Sagas or Star Wars Legends, whatever the, whatever the name is going to be of the game. Anyway, the official announcement from Bioware and Lucas is coming out on the 21st of October. I believe this is yeah. a Tuesday. 
Yeah. And I don't want to misspeak yet, but we've got somebody working on getting our press credentials, and it's not just anybody. It's somebody important within Lucas. So I, I feel fairly confident that we will be able to be on the ground with a contributor. However, Fingers crossed. However, we need somebody local in San Francisco or somebody who can get there in relatively short order on Tuesday the 21st. Yeah. The the deal is we need somebody who is a contributor for D20 Radio. So if you email me for the first time ever and I don't know who you are and I haven't seen how you've contributed to our community, don't expect to get an email back. Um, unless you want to send your resume or something like that. Because this is this is a big enough deal for us that we can't screw it up. So yeah. I'd rather not have somebody there than to you know have something negative happen that will blow up our chances for the MMO for years. Yeah, that would be bad. Anyway, so the MMO's not coming out for a while. I think uh, it's going to be third, fourth quarter 2009, from what I understand. But here again, that is unconfirmed. We hope to get that next Tuesday. Anyway, Very cool. Anyway, so if if you're in San Francisco, if you... In you the know, Bay Area. In the Bay Area, somewhere around there, please get in touch with us because we need a contributor from that area to go possibly represent d20 radio for us very and cool i've said my piece well thank you thank you gamer nation let us know that's right okay so where were we going after this i have lost no, we're, my we're going where i went and i went to tatooine for the first time in like uh, three weeks yes. oh i forgot what if you can believe it yeah sure i can believe it This is Watto for Watto's Bargain Basement, and I want you to come on down to Tatooine this week for our big special sale. Tell them Java sent you and you get a free chance cube. Uh, we got the deals for you. Come on down to Watto's Bargain Basement. Uh, what do you know? Uh... I don't know why that came out really low. I thought it sounded fine. Okay. I missed Watto, man. He says hi, by the way. Really? Something about you owing him money? It was one of those high, like, I, tell him I said hi. I have, um, I have made my peace with him, and he, contri- he, he continues It was something to, about interest? I'm not sure. No, well, he continues to, yeah, I'll, I'll have to talk to him on his own, but I've already told him that he, either he backs off or he loses his wings. Okay. Well, I'll I'll let you work that out with him, but uh, I've got you know, the power don't, to don't make cut off happen. too much. He he cuts me some really good deals when I get up there. Check this out, dude. Dude, this I'm not going to turn it on because it would be really bad for the podcast. Uh, but uh, this is a sound sponge, Dave. And uh, for those of you out there in the gamer nation, it's not an actual sponge. It's a, a small little handheld uh, electric electronic unit. Um, but okay, so Dave, say that you're itching to break into a rebel facility and steal the rebel scum's battle plans for the glory of the Empire, but you're, you're worried. You're worried about the sound of breaking glass as you come in through the window. Or um, say, say you're in command of that uh, heavily armed squadron of ARC troopers that are, is sitting there in heavy battle armor, and are about to sneak into that Separatist base, uh, but their armor is just too loud to quietly get inside. Or say, for example, you want to squelch your podcast partner. Haha, <laughs> I can see you talking, but nobody can hear you. 
that, that too, yeah. Well, well, for, for any of that, the sound sponge is your answer. Uh, this small unit weighs only a kilo, but it transmits a bevy of inaudible sounds that squelch the noise near it. Uh, bottom line, that sound sponge masks all noises in a six-square radius from it, increasing the perception DC to hear noises in that area by ten. Ten! Okay? Mm. This can completely negate the worst armor check penalties to stealth checks. Um, and all, Dave, for a measly 3,500 credits. <laughs> measly? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not measly. Uh, but uh, well worth it when it's used properly. Um, right. And the sound sponge can be found on page 102 of the brand new Force Unleashed campaign guide. It's the sound sponge from Ronco. Yeah. Uh, very, very cool. Now, in terms of Wado's guys, uh, we wanted to go over a couple interesting things that were in the books from The Force Unleashed, but there is a thread up for Wado's Bargain Basement in um, on the forums at d20radio.com slash forum, and we're going to start with Wado's now, kind of moving away from the books and going into, because we've had some real requests for this, um, going into some listener-generated equipment. Now, there's a few things up there right now, but we want to put out an open call for more. We want to know what kind of stuff you guys have homebrewed up, various pieces of equipment, weaponry, stuff like that. Um, we're looking for more odds and ends of equipment as opposed to weaponry. Uh, but uh, we want you guys to post it up there, and uh, we can uh, share it with the rest of the Gamer Nation. Uh, and maybe... Maybe, if you're lucky and your business acumen is high enough, we can work out a wholesale deal with Wado. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, not bad, not bad. All right. Well, why don't we get started with Encounter Design, the meat of our particular program today. That's probably not a bad idea, and I'm kind of excited to talk about this. Um, We are kind of going to be eschewing away from uh, a lot of technical book discussion and, and really getting into what has been a, a well, I mean, I, you've been seeing as much as I have, man, a pretty common user uh, listener request. Yeah. Um, uh, we've had requests uh, multiple times over the past few months um, and a few crunchy episodes uh, to uh, help with the GMs of the Gamer Nation uh, giving our advice in terms of ways to build games, uh, set up encounters, and create set pieces. So this episode, we're going to talk about several ways to create some good combat encounters, personal encounters. Uh, that will stimulate your players and uh, create a memorable game for you, hopefully. So uh, get your books out, uh, sit back, relax, and let's talk about encounter design. Let's. First, Dave, I think it is apropos to, before we talk about what is good about an encounter, to talk about what is bad in an encounter. (laughs) Um, In particular, the pratfalls of bad encounter design. And basically, uh, look, we've we've all played in and, and probably run bad encounters. Okay, encounters that leave players grumbling, angry, wetting themselves, uh, maybe because of PC deaths or or bad set placement, or worst of all, characters that are left feeling useless. Or we've, I'm sure, all run or GM'd encounters that leave the GM pulling his hair. You know, encounters that lasted only a single round with all foes pulverized by the force or with a single attack roll and nary a scratch on the PCs despite the 20 minutes of NPC prep work you did setting that encounter up. Um, So, uh, before we go into the building blocks of good encounters, let's talk about how to avoid two of the major problems with bad encounters. And the first uh, major problem that we want to talk about with bad encounters is the cluster... (laughs) Insert it, yeah. Um, Okay, sometimes you can't help it, but 
every time, Dave, that, that I see multiple goons standing next to each other, I, I just want to whip up my lightsaber and strike someone down. Right? In practice, guys, I usually find that the proximity of my baddies to each other is directly to proportional to how easy the encounter is. All right? Your various mooks, they need to have some distance between them. Not only does it make sense from a combat perspective, but it necessitates a few features of encounter area that are very important for your players, too. So let's talk about those. Doors. All right? Have multiple entrances into an encounter if needed. Um, that's not commonly thought of, but it needs to be thought of. A good rule of thumb is to put one entrance into the encounter area for every two to three bad guys in the encounter. Don't have everybody stream in through one door. Have them come in through different areas. Now, if you're in the open, you know, kind of like outdoors, so obviously don't worry about this. Um, but when you're not, this is something you need to think about. And when placing doors on a map, let them open up into a flat-out room beyond or into a hallway, and this is what's important, with space on either side of the doorway. Doorways can and should be used for cover by both you, uh, your threats, and, of course, the PCs. Okay. Now, two other things to consider when talking about the clusters. Um, the second one I like to call the rule of six. All right. Six squares is often the magic number in this game. It is the average movement speed of a character. It is the width of force slam, the length of force lightning. It is the point blank range of a thrown weapon, etc., etc., etc. Now, when placing my baddies, I usually like to space them at least six squares apart. Um, it allows for multiple target powers and weapons to usually take effect and affect you know, multiples, giving PCs that advantage, but not squash every stormtrooper in the room because they're all standing right next to each other. Um, so, the rule of six. Good idea. Follow it. And lastly, one thing to consider in terms of, uh, of the, the cluster issue. Star Wars does not have cozy little rooms. I mean, seriously, Dave, you're, you're watching the movies. Have you ever seen a nice little cozy cottage or a cramped space? Is not everything in the entire EU and films this massive area with needlessly tall ceilings, extra space out the wazoo, I mean, huge you know, conduits running from the ceiling to the floor, just this insane amount of empty space? Um, and Yeah. Yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, so it Considering that, it frustrates the living piss out of me when I see a 4x4 square room on an encounter map, okay? Look, a long hallway, that's one thing, okay? Most are only going to be a couple squares wide, but still very long. For rooms, when you're making them, strive to make them big, okay? A good rule of thumb is to have a, ma a minimum of two squares length and width for every PC in your game. you got five PCs, the room should be at least 10 by 10 probably bigger. Okay, your baddies can't space out unless they have the room to do so. All right, so try and make your room big enough to follow the rule of six. Yep. So there you go. Now the second major pratfall of bad encounter design that we want to talk about is uh, the the Iron Man. I I am Iron Man. Uh, yeah. uh. <laughs> uh, sorry, Ozzy Osbourne's rolling over in his grave. Uh. Except he's not dead, is he? No. I'll still bet he's able to roll over in his grave, though. It is Ozzy Osbourne. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, sadly, Dave, um, and I'm sure you probably agree with me on this, I mean, from your experiences, I mean, this is one of the more common mistakes I see GMs making, and they usually do it without even thinking about it, and it's what I call the Iron Man mistake, okay? And this is when you, intentionally or unintentionally, create an encounter, not a single foe, but 
an encounter. Now, sometimes that can be just a single foe. Okay, if it's like a BBEG, a big bad evil guy, or a, a boss, okay. But when you create an encounter that can only be defeated through the use of a single type of weapon, or a single application of the force, or the use of a specific skill, um, there's only, you know, only one way to do it, basically. Um, in third edition D&D, this was almost written into the freaking rules. You know, sorry, Brekar, you're unable to harm the Sarthos demon. Why not? I just critted it. Yes, but it has DR35 or unobtainium. What's unobtainium? A rare metal your sword isn't made out of. Uh, and that was very common. I mean, that example's a little tad silly, yes, but you'd be surprised how often just that near exact thing happened. But it really summarizes the problem. If you've got an entire encounter that can only be defeated through force use, or a grenade launcher, or a persuasion check, etc., 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 it's usually a very bad thing, and something you want to avoid. And most GMs, Dave, you know, they don't consciously do it. They look through, oh man, this would be really cool, but they don't think about how the defenses interact and, uh, you know, w- with what the players can do, and that's something that really you have to be conscious of, all right? Two examples of this. The first one, I know, sir, that you are familiar with. I call it Stormtroopers on a Ledge. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, that, that one had us all saying... Um, Artu says the chances of survival are 725 to 1. Yes, that one had you all saying that. I mean, this was so stupid. I mean, this is my own favorite story, and it's about one of my own screw-ups. A party of four second-level Jedi, you included, Dave, playing a Wookiee Jedi, had no ranged weapons... And they're traveling across Tatooine, and they're attacked by a squad of stormtroopers on a rock ledge 15 squares above them. Um, Only one Jedi had move object, and he used it early on. I mean, so move light object was all you guys could do. You were picking up rocks and hurling at them for a die six of damage. It was pathetic. Yeah. And there there was nothing you guys could do. You had no ranged weapon. We were hitting them with their own guns. (laughs) Yeah, I know. There was only one way to deal with that encounter, and it it was just poor planning on my part. Okay. Bottom line, oh, dude, that was the same. That was the mm. same session that led to our example of remember the lightsaber that didn't hit the switch to close the door. Yeah, our first when good games go bad segment. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Boy, that, that, that was just that. Well, you know, hey, what? It was a pickup game. What are you gonna? What are you gonna do? Pugging uh, it. Just pugging it. Just yeah, basically. But listen, bottom line, guys, it's not uncommon for you to have specialized threats that require a specific measure to overcome them, but vary your foes to give each one of your specialist PCs something to do. And if all you have is a BBEG, you know, a a boss, then make sure he's got multiple points of attack you can come at him from, basically. So two big fallacies to avoid there, and that one's Iron Man. All right. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's, let's move on to creating a good encounter, Yeah. Good. Okay, so it's good. It's it's so good. Be good. Um, wow, that's that's before a lot of our listeners' times, <laughs> which is sad. Yeah, yeah, I know. That was ET, by the way. Yeah, you you uh, got it. yeah I'll you be caught it right but. here. I'll yeah, be right here. Not. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> very very good. Very good. Thank you. Well. Okay, so knowing how to avoid the Iron Man and the cluster um, can help keep things from going bad. But beyond that, how does one make things great? Okay, there's there's no magic formula for running a good encounter, guys. I mean, frankly, the do's and the don'ts are, are going to change from playgroup to playgroup depending on what your players like to do and how they come at certain challenges. 
but there is a good list of things that I would recommend that every GM run past his encounter design to make it more exciting, survivable, challenging, and memorable. And to avoid pissing off your players, bottom line. Very, very important. Let's talk about a couple essentials. Things that should absolutely be in every encounter map that you create, hands down, end of sentence. One, cover. Oh. No. (laughs) Cover, 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 for Yoda's sake. All right, whether, whether it's a doorway, uh, boxes, supply crates, computer terminals, power conduits that are uselessly running through the middle of the room, um, ancient statues, random bystanders, you should never, ever, ever have a blank open room for your fight, okay? Cover opportunities for both your baddies and your PCs should be available along the walls, in the center of your combat area, and in creative places that aren't too hard to get to. Okay, To a lesser extent, if you can't provide cover, or in addition to cover, provide concealment if at all possible. Dimly lit areas, shadowy areas, uh, busted steam pipes, uh, you know, smoke, mist, get creative. Okay, You should have cover or... P- Hopefully cover and concealment, but at least cover in every single encounter you create. All right. Two, terrain. All right. Now, I don't care if it's a pristine Imperial cruiser that the encounter is on. Your encounter map should have numerous areas of difficult terrain. Gaps in the flooring. Torn up or corroded deck plating. Rubble. Deactivated droids, uh, uh, puddles of leaked coolant or or water, uh, the spilled contents of a crate, etc. Whatever. Place these areas of difficult terrain near but not blocking doorways and through direct charging lines. Um, It's very important. You know, I mean, and you know what I'm talking about, Dave? I mean, so much of skill usage and talents in this game refer to things like, you know, getting through difficult terrain, taking advantage of and using cover. You have to provide these not only to allow all these options to be usable, but just to provide certain defensive and offensive options for yourself and the PCs. It's essential. Right. It's absolutely essential. Oh, yeah. Um, Okay, so there's that. Cover, concealment, terrain. Now... These next options are things that we we recommend for most every encounter, but they aren't as terribly essential as cover, concealment, and terrain. Okay, this is a, a good list to draw from and kind of mix and match as you choose. All right, now you know I'm a big fan of this, Dave. Um, but in most every encounter I create, I always, almost always, of course, include hazards. Um, so pick up your core rule books, boys and girls, and. Uh, Turn to page 252. Uh, Various examples of hazards are discussed all the way to page 256. Look at them. They have (gasps) CLs. Amazing. Oh, Things like acid, toxins, poison, fire, radiation, smoke. I mean, you're not just limited to just this stuff either. I mean, but the things discussed herein provide an excellent barometer for you to design your own encounter hazards. And when you're doing so, just model it after one of these existing hazards. Look at the CL, look at the damage it does, look at the attack modifier, and just transcribe it, okay? One important thing about a hazard, though, all right, and this is what separates it from, you know, a, a turret or what would be a threat. A hazard must affect both NPCs and PCs equally. All right, and if you notice, you know these things do. Okay, I mean fire, radiation, um, you know acid, a pool of water. You know, that's just they affect anyone in the encounter indiscriminately, and that's very important. All right. 
Now, as a sub-note to this, and this is another thing I really prefer to do in my own encounters, if I put a hazard in, I really like for it to be defeatable hazards, which is not something that's discussed in the book. Hazards, Dave, I mean, agree with me or not, they're, they're usually pretty nasty. But there's no way to kill a hazard like you can a foe. I mean, it would be really nice if the Wookiee could draw his vibroax and, you know, slice through the radiation and just make it go away. But, you know, that, that can't exactly happen. So give your skillful character something to do by changing that, okay? If a gout of boiling steam is bursting from a pipe and is damaging the PCs, allow a mechanics check to shut it off during combat. Um, you know, make it a full round. I mean, that, that's a big deal. That's effectively taking a threat out of the fight, and it's defeating the CL. If an automated security system is blasting away from three auto turrets, let a PC slice into a terminal that you put nearby to shut it down. Um, if you have a hazard, make it defeatable. That's just a, a marvelous recommendation. And let the PCs know. Give them hints, you know what I mean, um, to, to go about doing that. Or at least escapable. At least escapable, exactly. Um, you know, throwing somebody uh, <laughs> out of an airlock into uh, zero gravity and, and no atmosphere. Um, there's not a lot you can do about that unless you happen to have a jetpack handy. Um, know what I mean? Vern. So, should do. Yeah, should do. So, think about it. Um, and along those same lines with the defeatable hazards... The next thing on the list was what I would call the skillful challenge. Now, this is not to be confused with a skill challenge from 4th edition D&D. I use the term skillful challenge to describe an intentional way of using a skill to defeat or attack a standard threat. All right, And that's a little confusing, which is basically what I'm saying is what I like to do is design an encounter that has uh, something about the terrain or the feature that allows a character to use a skill check to directly attack a foe the same way uh, somebody would with a blaster or a vibroax. Um, now, you can't do this all the time, but there's times when it can really pay off. Okay? Now, my favorite examples of this are a wild encounter that I once ran way back in my revised core rule days. And I think you were there for this, Dave. Um, I think we were playing at your old house. Uh, where you guys were fighting this cybernetically enhanced Rancor. Remember oh, this? we've told this story before. Yeah. Yes, okay, okay, yeah. And so the, we're fighting the cybernetically enhanced Rancor in the bowels of this old Imperial research facility, and it was the, it was the last surviving monster of this mutated menagerie of terror. And uh, the beast was in this large holding chamber, and there are these dozens of large cages, like these four square by four square cages, suspended from the ceiling. And there was a nearby computer terminal that could be used to drop these 4x4 cages crashing onto the squares below. And you guys had this amazing time just like herding the Rancor into place as the party slicer dropped two tons of steel onto him. Um, you know, and you were shooting it and hurling grenades as well, but it was just a way for him to run in there, make a use computer check, and be effective in a combat encounter by doing that. And all it was was a little bit of ad hoc encounter design. Worked really well. Um, now, a more recent foray that IGM turned out to be a lot of fun. The PCs found themselves in the bowels of Cloud City, okay, fighting a troop of mercenaries that were kidnapping an innocent industrialist. And the final fight took place in this large pipe junction with a really neat hazard. Every round, a spray of burning Tabana gas would jet out randomly from a ceiling pipe, attacking a random PC or NPC. And it was like, 
plus five to hit reflex defense, and it did like two die six of fire damage. But what I allowed was a full round mechanics check at this nearby junction box to direct the spray. So basically, you spend a full round, you make a mechanics check to you know uh, switch the you know the, the diodes and the the valves and stuff to direct it to go out of a specific uh, a specific pipe. And um, you, basically, what you did was you made a a mechanics check versus the reflex defense of the target, and um, I gave a cover bonus, of course, uh, because you know that that's a little off kilter. Um, but it worked out wonderfully, and you had the the gearhead walking over and you know spraying these enemies with you know burning tabana gas, and it was it was a lot of fun. So be creative, um, encourage your players to use their skills, and they will. But you have to allow for that in the encounter design, and if you build it directly into the setting of the encounter. Um, you can really, they'll take it and run with it, okay? Now, if the encounter doesn't warrant something like that, try and allow skill checks to be used to provide circumstance bonuses at the very least, okay? Or maybe use a skill check to remove concealment or create it. Um, you know, turning on or off lights via computer terminal is a very common thing I can think of. Be creative, bottom line. Um, the next thing on the list that uh, I would advise you to think about when you create an encounter area, elevation. Okay, this is not always the easiest thing to pull off, but it adds so much to an encounter. All right, I try to include it in an, in every I mean in every encounter possible that I create. But elevation can be something as simple as a staircase that rises to a platform halfway up the wall that has an exit in it, or like a, a catwalk that overlooks an area, or large crates or boxes that can be stood upon. Elevated areas, and this is important need to be accessible. They add so much to an encounter design and they can allow you to, you know, add space to a very small area, but they have to be accessible. Don't make my stormtrooper on the ledge mistake, okay? Provide stairways, ladders, lifts, rickety stacks of boxes, and what a great use of an often neglected skill, climb, uh, to get up there. Always provide a way for the PCs to get to that level. Do you remember, um, uh, Dave, um, I, I guess it was. Well, no, you weren't. You weren't in that game uh, last weekend. I had the. I had the. I held a dark side game after in honor of our last podcast. Ah, uh, yeah. And it was it was TG and GM Brev and Cat and um, uh, Venku from um, uh, our existing campaign, and it was a dark side game, and it was just fantastic. And the final encounter was on Kashyyyk, and it was this sort of platform in the middle of the trees. And I had these three sections that were suspended, each one higher than the next, with ladders leading to all of them. And it was fantastic. And there was a point where people were climbing to the ladders and fighting, you know, and there's all this circumstance that goes into it and, you know, things that you really need to consider. You know, a chance for a force user to use surge creatively, things of that nature. I love elevation. Try and work it into your encounters. It's cinematic, and uh, you see it in almost every every single fight in the films. I mean, from Vader fighting Luke with all the catwalk action to, I mean, you know, Darth Maul and uh, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon where you're, you know, you're, they're jumping from, uh, uh, you know, catwalk to catwalk, you know, and you, you know, stairways get taken into account, all kinds of stuff. I love elevation. I use it all the time. So should you. It's a good thing. That's right. Very cool. And if not, just have the Emperor throw uh, little uh, Senate mobiles at Yoda. Yeah, another excellent example of elevation. So, uh, good stuff to consider. So, okay, take everything I've just said, and this is a lot. And right? throw it out. Th- throw it out and kind of keep it in the back of your head. Let's, let's condense this, okay? <laughs> the checklist. Oh, boy. Okay, now, now Gamer Nation, do me a favor. 
do your players a favor, okay? Right now, go to your desk, go to your computer, take a sticky note and write this down. Open up Word and start typing, all right? What I'm about to tell you, type it, write it in a list-style format. These things. First on the list, rule of six. The rule of six. Second on the list, large area. Third on the list, cover. Fourth, concealment. Fifth, terrain. Rule of six, large area, cover, concealment, terrain. Bold those five things and make them very big. Then continue your list. Continue with doors. Next, hazards. Next, skills. Next, elevation. All right. Put little check boxes next to each of those nine little list items. Take your sticky note or your word printout or whatever and paste it to the inside of your GM notebook or your core rulebook if you're really bold. Every encounter you design needs to pass through this checklist. Use this list as a tool and a reminder when you create your encounters to examine each of these aspects. You don't have to ensure that each encounter has every single check on the list, but at the worst, it will remind you to consider what you have not considered. And that's very important. So, a little piece of advice from me to you. Two credits. And you. And you, and you. And you, yes. Yeah, and you picking your ear. And you picking your nose. And her picking her belly button. Ew. Ew. We don't have very <laughs> many girl listeners. We had a couple. We had a new one sign up recently. Um, I think it was um, uh, uh, like a Revan fangirl, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, that's exactly what it was, Revan fangirl. At least, at least I hope that's a girl. So I want to hear her voice. Oh, so who's up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay. Call the loser line. Call the line, please do. Two zero six six hundred five eight seven two. And send a picture. Thank you. And send a picture. Yes, please. Okay. Well, we just talked about building an encounter map, building an encounter template, for lack of a better word. All right. You have your checklist. Fantastic. Things to think about. What about the threats? What about the threats themselves? So, so, so you're thumbing through Threats of the Galaxy or the last chapter of the Core Rulebook, and you're trying to decide what to throw at your PCs, what to put into this wonderful encounter that you've just thought of that is full of skillful challenges, cover, elevation, and all the rest. What do you do? How many Stormtroopers is too many? How high a CL is too high? We're going to take just a second to talk about some good ways to divide up your foes and provide adequate CL for the party. Okay. First and foremost, I think to consider, the area modifies the CL. Now, I um, I got a, an email a little while back, and I, actually, I think it was echoed also on a post on the forum, Dave. If, I don't recall. Maybe you can help me remember. But um, somebody asked, uh, basically had the thing, okay, a stormtrooper is a CL1. I honestly don't think a stormtrooper is anything close to a threat for a, a first-level character, considering their hit points and whatnot. Um, so how can that be? Um, or no, no, it was, it was, I don't think they're a threat for a first level party. And no, they're not a threat for a first level party, but they are a threat for a first level character. And that's where the distinction lies. But area modifies CL. Okay. A stormtrooper, uh, you know, is only a CL1, but when firing from a secure position of cover, which he should have plenty of because you design your encounters properly, that should easily be a CL2. Um, and the core rulebook is very clear on the fact that you need to adjust your CLs based on the circumstances. Okay. So there you go. Okay. 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 Now, 
second thing in terms of putting threats in the encounter, mix it up. All right. Is a single stormtrooper a challenge for a level one party of four characters? No, of course not. Five stormtroopers very much is. Now, five five stormtroopers right out of the book, that's not very fun. But four troopers, maybe one with a flamethrower, the other with a bandolier of stun grenades, and an officer make for a more interesting fight, no doubt. Mix it up. Very rarely should you ever have just one threat in an encounter, okay? And if you do, it should be a boss, nasty creature, you know, rancor, a big bad evil guy, Sith Lord, whatever. Um, But, you know, usually you're going to have multiple threats. Very rarely should those threats all be identical, have a, a leadership stratus in there. Have, a, you know, if you have these bosses, I like to have what I call sergeants, you know, where you're throwing a bunch of little mooks in and you've got sort of a mid-level, you know, same level as the party kind of guy, um, maybe maybe a couple seals higher than the party average, um, who kind of sort of leads them. And, you know, you want to mix it up and, you know, have make, make sure they have different tricks up their sleeves. It's a little harder during encounter design because you've got more than one stat block to take a look at. But uh, it tends to be worthwhile when you're actually running the encounter. Okay. However, in terms of maximum baddies on the table, even then, things tend to get a little maxed out when you've got over six threats out there. It gets kind of hard to run. And even the core rulebook recommends that you really don't go past six threats out there on the table at one time. I recommended it well as well. It just becomes a real, real hassle. Okay. Right. Lastly, waves. Right? And what I mean is waves of troops, waves of baddies that continually come up. If the situation calls for it, don't be afraid to keep the bad guys coming. All right? So a CL1 is not a challenge for a party. No, but it one, followed by one, followed by one, followed by one, followed by one, just might be. Um, don't be afraid to keep the bad guys coming. Okay, six stormtroopers followed by three more, followed by three more every three rounds can be pretty challenging. Perhaps the first round, a trooper runs to a terminal and sounds an alarm, and the waves of troops don't stop until the alarm does, or the doors are sealed and locked. And what a wonderful way to make that challenge a skillful one. Um, But that's pretty much it. Now, as far as maximum CLs go, this is really hard to determine, and there's no hard and fast rule for it. I mean, Dave. I mean, good grief! Look at our look at look at our current party for my alternate universe campaign. Do you guys? You guys are level five now. Do you honestly think you couldn't take on and just demolish a, an eight or a nine? I, mean, uh, I don't. Well, no, actually, I know full well because my character by himself took out an eight. Pretty much. I mean, it was a destiny point that saved the eight. Um, and actually, she was six at the time. I think. I huh? think. What? Now we're talking about the, the the fight in the pit. Wasn't that guy a CL eight? Oh, seven. Yeah, he was. And um, I was a, and I was a three at the time. God, yeah, you were. Now you had some really lucky rolls, but I was speaking more about the fact that when you guys were second level and went up a, went up against a CL six, um, uh, Sith, if you recall, uh, Darth Misk. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, seriously, you guys had her. I mean, it was a destiny point that saved your life, and then she ran away. Oh, that's uh, right. I forgot about that because yeah. I critted that little bitch. Yeah, so I mean, depending on how good your players are, guys, depending on what their builds are, they could probably handle a lot. Um, you're really going to want to take a close look at what they can handle and what they can't based on what they've been doing. Um, and test the waters. Don't be afraid to have reinforcements show up if you've discovered that what you've thrown at them is not enough. 
don't be afraid behind that GM screen to uh, cut somebody's hit points in half if they just find the challenge is far too much for the players than you thought it was going to be. Rule zero. Rule zero, basically, as the old second edition D&D adage said, pretty much. And lastly, guys, resources. Um, now, we get a lot of mail and forum questions asking how we physically run games, what tools we use, things we can recommend. And listen, there, as I said, there's no hard or fast way to GM. There's no instruction book. But I, I can recommend a couple things. All right. First, and this is kind of a new thing I'm recommending, the 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master Guide. Now, regardless of how you feel about 4th edition, and I know a lot of members of the Gamer Nation hate it, a lot of them love it, uh, I have yet to meet a single person, yay or nay, who has read the 4th E DMG and will deny that it is hands down the best GM supplement and tutorial ever produced. And it is. Hundreds of pages of advice on encounter design, player archetypes, dealing with tough games and tough people and tough situations, and all of it applies to everything, not just D&D. Highly recommended. I remember I got into a great discussion with um, uh, uh, with with uh, Dom, GM Dom, who was uh, you know guested on the podcast right after Gen Con, and we were having this post Revan discussion after we were running the module. And he's a huge fan of of Paizo uh, and and the uh, the continuation of three five with their Pathfinder series, and um, he's not a big fourth edition fan at all to say the least. But even he was like, you know, listen, the, the fourth edition DMG that's a fantastic book. Uh, GM Brev, who doesn't have any plans to ever run D and D went out and bought the book just because it was a good supplement and it helped him when he was designing his games. It's that good of it's it's that good of a thing. So highly recommended. Highly recommended. And for a last resource to recommend What the heck is going on back there? I, I don't know. Hang on. One sec. <laughs> and this oh, where's the Benny Hill music? Let me go ahead and cue that up real quick. And the crickets for all the 900 or so people that just said, what the hell is yeah, going on? Sorry, I just kicked my dogs out of the room. Uh, my, my two dogs are going kind of nuts. So <laughs> they were they were wrestling on the floor. Nice. Yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, let me, let me close it. Let me close the door here. <laughs> this look into the inner workings of D20 Radio is brought to you by no one in particular. Thank you very much. All right. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. No, we... Uh... <laughs> I really do need the Benny Hill music now because I have no idea what Chris just did to his microphone. You heard that. Uh, this piece of silence now on d20radio.com is uh, being produced or being brought to you by no one besides maybe Alex Van Doren. So... Yep. There you go. Yep. Technical yep. technical issues abound on at the home of GM Chris. See, that's what you get for kicking your dogs out of the room right there. That's actually more of a biological issue. My uh, my Boston Terrier and my boxer decided to have a pissing contest, a figurative one, not a literal one, um, on the floor of my office. Well, you know it happens. And then Darth Kramer got involved. Darth Kramer got involved. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that always stirs up the mix. All right. Well, okay. And so, <laughs> so let's talk about a map. <laughs> Speaking of ah, resources, yes, yes. 
the the second resource we can highly recommend uh, uh very simple a map <laughs> okay look I game with grogs who do it all on graph paper like back in the day or simply in their heads. Yes, yes, your geek cred is great. Your geek cred, it grows. Um, but for this system that is just so heavily dependent on template area effects, ranges, and geographically based circumstance bonuses, I find that a tabletop map is practically indispensable. Lose um, the fracking yeah. graph paper. Graph paper. Bah! Bah! So... Now, I know you've seen some wicked setups in your time, Dave, and I know there's a lot of tech-savvy folks out there that use, like, projected maps and laptops mm. and oh, yeah. PSPs and um, others print detailed diagrams of the area with huge 3D minis and terrain and ships, you know, and all three-dimensional and shit. Um, to be yeah. frank, I do all of this. but Whoa, watch on, out for the lightning. Oh, For, for, for what? Because I've never seen 3D minis, and I've seen minis, but terrains and ships. You've seen my 3D terrain. Well, I, I mean, I use all the technical solutions. Ah. Uh, oh, in okay. fact, you and you know the gaming rig I'm in the process of building right now. Uh, yes, I am. So, but it much, is very cool. That's right. It, it is, is very cool. cool. When it sees yeah. the light of day, it will be hot. Yeah, and you have never seen 3D terrain in any of my Star Wars games, no. But I have used it rather extensively in my D and D games. Um. But that was one foray into paper craft that I quickly learned that it's a lot of work. A lot of work. Bang the hype ratio is not real high. Not really. Now, if you enjoy the mini-making, that's cool. But yeah, bang to hype, not not that high. So, yeah. yeah that's, which is why you've seen very little of it for Star Wars. So, anyway, underneath all of this, guys, is a $30 solution that is as valuable to me as any game book. Go to a bookstore or a game store and pick up a Star Wars Minis Starter Game Pack. Okay, it costs about thirteen dollars U.S. to fifteen, depending on where you buy it. Okay, it comes with a handful of wonderful minis for use in your games, as well as a paper map of blank squares, about twenty by forty squares. Okay, take this map to Office Depot or Office Max, any office supply store with a laminator. They should be able to laminate the whole thing for about eight bucks, okay? While you're paying, grab a set of wet erase markers from the same store for about five bucks. You now have a fully reusable, fully rewritable map. Wet erase or dry erase? Both. I lately, you know, I I often use dry erase, but lately, I I mean, when you like when doing con work, Gen Con, I use wet erase just because you're moving so much crap around, you don't want to smudge. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, But the beautiful thing about the laminated is that you can do both. Yeah. Um, Like, and now that's that's one. Well, I'm getting to that in a minute, but that's kind of one of the cool things. Okay. So what you now have is this this full map. Okay. You can use different colored markers to denote difficult terrain or elevation. And you even got a few minis for your trouble. Now you can, and I know you've seen these. You can you can purchase the pre-made grid maps um, from one of a dozen places online, and they're made of like you know mylar or you know like pleather, kind of this you know vinyl material basically. The problem is they're wet erase only. Okay. If you use dry erase on them, it stains, and you usually have to use like 409 or some nasty ass chemical to try and get that stuff off. Okay. Um, 
what I like about the laminated maps is the fact that you can do wet erase, you can use dry erase, and as you will. And it's, it's really, really nice. I mean, when I get really complex sometimes, I'll use wet erase to draw like the walls and the actual encounter itself. So I have to have water to take that off. And if I want to do something temporary like a blast radius or uh, concealment, smoke, maybe a fire extinguisher, I'll use a dry erase marker. And then I can just take a quick paper towel and wipe it away when it's time when the time is done. I don't have to worry about getting anything wet. And then when the encounter is over, I can get it all wet and just erase everything. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. Um, but the pre-made grid maps, you know, they're cool. You can purchase them from one of a dozen places online or at your friendly local gaming store. They run you but from about fifteen to twenty-five to thirty bucks, depending on the size. Um, but honestly, for an extra few bucks, I, I prefer the laminated map um, and getting a few minis out of the deal, and and all that is why. So so there you go. So I hope this brief discussion of some of our tidbits of encounter design has helped you some, or at least given you some ideas. I sincerely hope you guys take advantage of the checklist. Um, Once again, the checklist. Very, very, very important. Rule of six. Big area, large area. Cover, concealment, terrain. All those need to be bolded. You need to have them in everything. Then continue. Doors, hazards, skills, elevation. Little checkboxes. Laminate it, too. <laughs> there you go. Easy as that. There you go. Go yeah. through it, and uh, I hope this helps somewhat. And um, we're going to be taking a little bit of time. Um, I'm not sure, because this is actually, we got a, I got another docking bay request um, for some starship combat encounter help, um, but it's only a small blurb, and so I thought we may cover it in a docking bay later on. But not this week, because we have something else to talk about this week. Not this week. That's right. And... TK421 is actually on secret assignment this week. For those of you following his activities, he can't Unfortunately. It's unbelievable. So we're just going to go ahead and stop, stop right into the bay. D20 docking bay, hosers. When it don't be making sense, we be making sense of it. Indeed. Excellent. Well, this D20 Docking Bay, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with our D20 Docking Bay, this is where we take the time to delve into some thorny rules issues that you may have questions of, and really get hunkered down and detailed into the mechanics, and get you an answer that you need. And if you guys have any Docking Bay requests, you can post them up at the forums. We actually have a thread specifically for D20 Docking Bay requests, and uh, of course you can go to uh, d20radio.com slash forums, sign up, become a member of the Gamer Nation to do that. So... Uh, this week, Dave, we got to thank your good friend, Akbar. It's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. Um, Akbar on our forums, or Mike from Springtown, who emailed me this week with an excellent topic for the docking bay, and I just had to fit it in considering our talk of a few of the hazards in encounter design. It uh, really fit in perfectly. And he he writes this. He says, Does he hey, eat Chris Akbar cereal? I'm sorry? Does he eat Akbar cereal? <laughs> Admiral Akbar cereal, ha! Huh? Not with brine shrimp. <laughs> what, what was it? Their, their tongues can't repel flavor of that magnitude. That's right. Uh, God, I've seen that before. Imitation crab meat. Woo! Imitation crab meat. Woo! <laughs> All right. We die. All right. Yet Akbar again. writes. He says, Hey, GM Chris and GM Dave, I am confused and hoping you can explain this something to me. My GM says one thing and my players say another, and other players say something different. Let me explain what happened. I play a Bothan scoundrel in our current game. 
We were fighting a bunch of craft in the engine room of this old ship, and the reactor got hit and started to leak radiation. A few of us get affected, and me and the human Jedi move down the condition track from the radiation damage. In the fight, I end up moving down the condition track even more, and when I try to spend three swift actions to move up, the GM says I can't because the radiation won't let me. I understand if I can't move up the track for the radiation, but even the condition track steps for the damage taken, that can't be right. The book says moderate radiation is only a CL4, and that seems way too powerful for a CL4. How is this supposed to work? Thanks for your help. Okay, Mike from Springtown, a.k.a. Akbar. Uh, this certainly is a trap, so uh, let's talk about it. Okay. Radiation and persistent conditions. Okay, radiation. First of all, let's talk about radiation and this this the nastiness that is therein, okay? Radiation is detailed on page 255 of the Core Rulebook, and there are four types of radiation, mild, moderate, severe, and extreme, and they range from a CL2 to a CL10, each one doing more damage with a greater bonus to hit versus your fortitude defense, and each with a higher treat injury DC to treat it, okay? Now, in your case, moderate radiation attacks with a plus two versus your fortitude defense, and it deals four die six of damage. Now, if any radiation attack, including this one, exceeds your damage threshold with its damage, you move a persistent step down the condition track. And just FYI, Dave, extreme radiation, which is that nasty CL10, has a plus 10 to hit versus your fortitude defense and deals 8 die 6 of damage and uh, needs a DC 30 treat injury check to cure it. Nasty, yes. Okay. And uh, once, if you are given a persistent condition from radiation exceeding your damage threshold, uh, the persistent condition cannot be removed um, until a treat injury is used on you. In your case, uh, Macbar, a trained DC-20 treat injury check with a required medical kit that takes eight hours for the check. Ooh. Yeesh, yeah. Um, this is detailed in the Treat Radiation section of Treat Injury on page 75 of the Core Rulebook. So, even if somebody gets you immediately, if you've got a persistent condition due to radiation, you've got it for eight hours. Okay. So, what does that mean, though? Let's talk about persistent conditions and the real heart of your question. Uh, now, detailed on page 149 of the Core Rulebook, a persistent step down the condition track can be caused by many things, but while it's there, it can't be removed except under certain circumstances, and that's detailed for each condition. In your case, the eight-hour treat injury check, basically. Okay, so does this mean you got a persistent condition, you're always plus one step down the condition track, no matter what, until the condition goes away? No, not necessarily. Your GM, however, was correct in that while under the effects of a persistent step down the condition track, any persistent step down the condition track, you cannot use the recover action to move up the condition track. And that's, you know, spending three swifts to, to rest and move a step up the condition track. You can't recover if you have a persistent step. Ever. At all. For anything. Yeah, that's really nasty. So if you're at a minus 10 on the condition track, no matter how you got there, if you have a persistent condition, you cannot move up the track just by recovering. And that's really, really nasty. However, this is just the recover action. You can still move up the condition track through other means, okay? Maybe you pass unconscious and you make your successful con check to awaken after falling unconscious. 
um, you will move one step up the condition track. You know that you, you know that that is not part of the recover action. The use of certain talents will let you move the condition track. Stuff like Indomitable, all right, which now has a whole new level of useful, usefulness, huh? Um, equilibrium, okay, or force powers such as Vital Transfer when you spend a force point with it, all right? Theoretically, by using those things, you could have a persistent condition forever and still use things to move you up the condition track. It just means that when you do move down the condition track, you can't use the recover action to move back up. So that's a little confusing, but I hope that makes sense. And uh, your GM was correct in his ruling. And radiation, yeah, is hella nasty. Yep. It's hella nasty. Yep. And, uh, you know, honestly, a CL4 for four die six damage, that's really not that high. Um, but when you take into account the persistent condition that could occur, a CL4 is very warranted. Right. In my opinion. Yep. So to clarify, even if your first step down the condition track is because of that, and you have your persistent condition, then you get hit with a blaster bolt that beats your damage threshold, and you go down another step, you cannot get that second step back with recover. Correct. Not with recover, no. No. You can do it by so, other means. Yeah, persistent conditions are nasty, and people don't really realize it. They're I mean, that's blind. why poison is so awesome. Um, you know, poison, radiation, it's they're awesome techniques. So There you go. There we go. Hope that answers that question. And if you guys have any questions for the Docking Bay, please email them to us. gmchris at d20radio.com, gmdavid at d20radio.com. Get to the website, d20radio.com slash forum. Sign up. Get your voice heard. Become a member of the Gamer Nation. Give us a call on the Lose a Line. We want to hear from you. That's right. And remember, if you're in San Francisco and you can help us on Tuesday the 21st, please call or whatever. Email. Email. Yeah. yeah. E- e- email best. Email best. Email, email best. Yes, indeed. So... Very cool. There we go. Well, thank you guys. That was a nice little long show. It was a long show. And next week, uh, next week we have an opportunity. I think it. it, it we're going to be very, very dependent on what Wizards does this week with the Star Wars site. But um, we'll see where we go next week. But it should be a pretty good show. And no. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. GM Dave is going to be out of town, so I'll have lots of time to avoid wife aggro. Yes. Oh, and we are playing. The alternate universe campaign yes. next Saturday night. Yes, it's, it's been almost two months, Dave. It has been a long time for that campaign, and we finally got everyone together to where they're going to be able to do it. And I am freaking excited. That's right. And the first module of that will be published sometime in 2009. <laughs> bah! I got. Hey, you know what? Um, GM Dom is helping me with the maps right now, and um, Joe Martin, who is this awesome uh, graphic artist. Um, who has done a lot of work on swag. If you guys go to um, uh, the Star Wars Art- Artist Guild, um, he's done a lot of work on there. He is doing the panels right now. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to get this done nicely, guys. So uh, this first module will be available soon um, at d20radio.com. And, uh, of course, it's going to be up there with a lot of other downloadable content we're soon to have. We're going to have Berman's stat cards up there. I can't wait to take yep. advantage of those. Yeah, and there are a lot of people who have called and asked and, and, or emailed and asked, how do we send our content in? We tell you, all we need is a Word file. But as of yet, we still, aside from this from Berman, we've gotten nothing. So I know. So if, if you guys have anything, man, anything, any, uh, any, any adventures that you've written and that you want out there, you know, if it, get, get your name out there. We will happily be the conduit for yep. it. Somebody asked so. about copyright and all that. One, we can't really copyright it anyway because it's 
really based on Lucas's stuff. Yeah, so. it's like, yeah, te- technically you can't copyright it either. Right. Uh. So then <laughs> don't don't worry about what you your IP becoming uh, intellectual property of D20 Radio because it just won't happen. We we won't yeah. do that to you. So of course not. It's of just a way not. to get your name out there, boys and girls. Yeah, the bottom the bottom line is for this project, we we know there's a lot of great gamers out there, a lot of good game masters that have come up with a lot of great stuff. And in, in my opinion, the biggest dearth of this system right now is the lack of pre-made modules. Um, pre-made modules sell; they're easy. They get people playing the game. And the more that we, the gamer nation, all of us can provide to the world at large, the better this system is going to be. The more people are going to be playing it. Yep. And that's the bottom line. There so you go. that's that's the the, the plan. Yeah. So we want what you got. Give it to us now. Give it to us hard. And with that, I wish you all peace, love, and good gaming. As I distance very much from my partner here, I'll say keep them dice rolling. D20 Radio, where gamers roll www.d20radio.com This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at starwars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. This is Anakin Skywalker, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast, mostly because my mommy won't let me. (laughs) She says we need to save credits for acting lessons. Hi, this is DM Kate from Radio Free Hamlet, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast.